In Genesis 1, the Lord looked upon all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Mankind, as first created, was very good, but Adam and Eve grasped after the forbidden fruit, disobeyed God's law, and tried to hide from God. And Genesis chapters 4 through 6 go on to tell us of more grasping, of more violations of the good creation, of more hiding. As man has multiplied, so has his wickedness. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, we are told, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The very heart of humanity has become corrupt, and this grieves the heart of God. Not only has man's heart become corrupt, but Genesis 6.12 tells us, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, we've seen that the creation of the world is portrayed as a construction of a temple, as the holy house of God. And so man has now desecrated that temple. He has profaned God's holy place. And so a holy and just God must cleanse his house. He must purify his temple. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. The scope of God's judgment is so severe. It challenges our modern sensibilities. How could a loving God simply blot out that which he has created? I mean, we're only six chapters into this thing, right? But from the Bible's perspective, the sinfulness of man has so undermined God's original intentions for humanity, for his world, that the only way to salvage both is to purge them completely. And yet, God doesn't totally destroy. Now, he who once made man from the dust could surely do it a second time if he chose, but that is not how God rebuilds. There is one righteous man left in the city. There is one man who still does what is right, who still walks with the Lord. And we're actually first told of him back in Genesis chapter 5. We were told that when he was born, his father gave him the name Noah, which means rest or relief. His father prophesied at that time, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, at first reading, we might think Noah's dad is just excited to have an extra set of hands on the family farm, right? But look more closely. Noah's father frames the naming of his son in terms of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Relief from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's father is talking about the curse of Genesis 3, when God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In painful toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So from his birth, Noah is portrayed as one who has come to reverse the curse, to redeem fallen humanity. We know that he's of the line of Seth, the son that God raised up in place of Abel who was killed. 
Noah comes as the son of promise, the seed of the woman who will war with the serpent. So in Genesis 6, when God declares he will blot out man from the earth, he makes one exception. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is what we call salvation by grace. That's what grace means, unmerited favor and blessing. God is graciously choosing to save Noah. As righteous as he is, Noah cannot save himself from the destruction that is about to come. God must choose him. God must deliver him. This is the only kind of salvation there is. The salvation by God's grace, an act of God. And so Noah is described as a righteous man. He's described as blameless in his generation. And that word blameless is very significant. Pay attention when you hear the Bible describe someone as blameless. It's important. And we'll see this again as we continue in Genesis and beyond. Abraham is blameless. Jacob is blameless. Job is blameless. And I point this out because there's a, a popular method of interpretation that thinks in order to show how great God is, we have to exaggerate the sinfulness of the patriarchs. Right? So you'll hear things like, well, Noah, he was just a drunk, and Abraham, he was a liar, and Jacob was a cheat, and Job was self-righteous, and Moses, well, he was a murderer. But look what God did despite this bunch of losers he had to work with. Right? That's not the way the Bible talks about it. It's certainly not the way the apostles describe these men, and, and this view, I think, often prevents people from seeing these men as foreshadowing the truly blameless one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one to come. And that's how the New Testament authors view these men. But the Bible says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It doesn't mean Noah was perfect. It doesn't mean that Noah never sinned. What it means is that Noah feared the Lord. Noah obeyed the Lord. When he did sin, he repented. He offered sacrifice. He kept God's word. And this word, blameless, it also has sacrificial implications later in the Old Testament. It's the word used to describe animals that are considered acceptable offerings to the Lord. Now, in those cases, it's usually translated as spotless or without blemish. But it's the same Hebrew word used here of Noah. Noah is a living sacrifice. He's an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. So this is the image that Genesis is presenting us here. The whole generation living at the time of Noah is corrupt, unclean. But Noah is blameless. Noah is clean. And we'll see this distinction between clean and unclean animals that comes up again in the story. But you need to see that it starts here with Noah. Noah is the clean one in the midst of an unclean generation. And so God says to Noah, verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This Hebrew word that we translate as ark, it only appears one other place in the Bible. Do you know what that is? It's the word for the basket that Moses' mother makes for him to hide him from murderous Pharaoh. It's an ark. And it too is made from wood, and it is covered with pitch. And it too will bring God's chosen one safely through the waters. 
It, too, is an ark for the greater Noah to come. We'll see many anticipations of the exodus in the story of Noah today. So Noah's called to build this ark, and apparently it is a kind of house because we're told it has rooms in it. The ark has rooms in it. Now, who else in Genesis has built a house so far? Yeah, Genesis 1. We saw that the creation of the world is portrayed as a construction project, the building of a cosmic temple, a house of God. God is a house builder in Genesis. And so Noah images God by constructing this ark house. God gives Noah the dimensions and the directions for the building of this ark, just as God will give Moses the directions for the tabernacle. And we'll give David the directions for the temple. And so we see the, the blueprints for God's house always come from heaven. And they're given to God's chosen builder who will faithfully carry them out on earth as it is in heaven. The same is true for Noah's project. Noah's told to make the ark with lower, second, and third decks. And so it's a three-story house. And this is just like the cosmic house God built when he created the world, right? The world is divided into three stories. The heavens above, the earth beneath, and the waters below. It's also just like the tabernacle and temple, which have three zones. The most holy place, the holy place, and the courtyard around it. So why are we building this three-story house? God says, 617, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Ah, this isn't just a house. It's a houseboat, right? And we learn only that which comes into this houseboat will be saved from the waters of judgment that are about to come. And so we see in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's not pass over this too quickly, right? Contrast this with what we've already seen so far in Genesis. Adam and Eve, Cain, all these have failed to do what God commanded. But Noah did this. What does it mean to be righteous, to be blameless in the midst of an unclean generation? It means doing the word of the Lord. It seems simple, right? Just do what God says. But we all know it's not as easy as it sounds. And the early chapters of Genesis sing this refrain, sin is always crouching at the door. But righteous Noah does obey. He does all that God commands him. And again, the events of the Exodus are foreshadowed here. God tells Moses to build a tabernacle, a three-story house, gives him the plans for it. And Exodus 40, 16 tells us, This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Noah is foreshadowing Moses. So you can kind of see that, that the author of Genesis is both looking back and looking ahead. In looking back to Genesis 1, we can see that Noah's ark is a microcosm of the creation. It's a small replica of the world that God made. It has three stories that are formed and 
three stories that are filled, just as we have in Genesis 1. We have a man that's placed there to work and keep this garden ship. And in looking ahead to the book of Exodus and beyond, we can see that Noah's ark is a precursor to the tabernacle and to the temple. It is a house built by instructions that come from heaven. And Noah is placed there as priest to uphold God's word. And this is the place that you must go if you wish to be saved from the judgment of sin. The looking back and the foreshadowing of what is to come, that's going to happen throughout this story. And so we go to chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, and one pair of the animals that are not clean, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. You see that emphasis on the number seven, just as we saw in the creation account, just as we see in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. Again, we have other echoes of Genesis 1 here. Animals will be brought to Noah for his safekeeping just as animals were brought before Adam in the garden. And we see the tabernacle foreshadowed. Noah is portrayed as a, as a priest. Animals are brought to him and he has to distinguish between what is clean and unclean, separating sheep from goats. Just as God has distinguished clean Noah from the unclean generation, so Noah images the work of God by distinguishing between clean and unclean animals, as is the work of the priest in God's temple. And we see that Noah spends seven days preparing, seven days getting his family and the animals into the ark, just as it took seven days to consecrate the priest and the furniture of the tabernacle before worship could begin. Then chapter 7, verse 11 tells us, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his family and all the animals entered the ark, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. So it rains for 40 days, 40 days. We've noted many times the number 40 in the scriptures represents a period of testing or of trial. Think of the 40 days our Lord spent in the wilderness tested by Satan. It's also the number of years in a generation. You think of the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness as the rebellious generation died off. So this rain of the flood, it lasts 40 days, and it's a time of testing and trial for faithful Noah and for his family. It's also a purging of the wicked generation who refused to honor the Lord. God's cosmic temple is being purified. Then we're told, verse 17, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. It's 
21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So things are very bleak at this point. The waters are portrayed as, as mighty warriors in this passage. They keep prevailing. As the armies of Assyria and Babylon are later portrayed in the prophets like roaring waves. Here the waters increase. They triumph. They prevail mightily over the earth, even over the mountains. What we're going to see is that the flood is a decreation. The flood is a decreation. It's a reversal of Genesis 1. Right? We remember that on creation day number one, God separated light from dark, day from night. But while the rain is pouring and Noah and his family and the animals are shut up in the ark, it's as if that distinction between day and night has ceased. And actually chapter 8 verse 22 implies that very thing. Perhaps the ark is feeling more like a tomb than a lifeboat at this point. Creation day one is being undone. And Noah and his family and the animals are in the darkness. Creation day number two, God separated the waters above from the waters below. But here we see the windows of the heavens opened up and the fountains of the deep burst forth. And so the waters above and below now rush back together as they were before creation. And so we see creation day two is undone. On creation day number three, God separated land from seas. But now the waters cover the land once again. Creation day three is undone. And of course, creation days four through six is God filling these forms that he had made with birds and fish and beasts and men. But during the flood, all these are unmade. All these are wiped out. You see, in the flood, God undoes all that he has done, unmakes all that he has made. All is decreated, everything that is, except the ark. And as we said earlier, the ark is portrayed as kind of a microcosm of the creation. It's a, it's a mini world. And it's as if all creation has been packed into this vessel, and, and now the ark is like a seed tossed upon the sea. It contains all the raw materials that are needed to sprout a new creation. But you can't plant a seed in the waters, can you? So we come to chapter 8. Now it might not be obvious at first, but this whole flood narrative that spans these few chapters, it's highly structured. It, it, it forms what we call a chiasm in literary terms. And that's a very fitting structure for a flood story because just as the waters rise to their peak and then recede, so the story takes the same sort of shape. And if you map it out, you find that the peak of the narrative, the center of the flood story, is actually right here at the beginning of chapter 8. And it is this phrase, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. That's the heart of the flood story. God remembered Noah. It's the main thing the author wants us to contemplate. In the midst of this cataclysmic judgment, as the whole of creation is being decreated, God remembered his chosen one. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Noah or forgot who he was. It's 
the Bible's way of saying that God then acted. He acted according to the promises that he had made to Noah. God did not abandon Noah. He did not abandon this tiny microcosm to the waters. God came through. He delivered Noah just as he promised. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And the word for wind here is the word ruach, which can be translated wind or breath or spirit. We've already seen that word in Genesis 1-2 by God beginning the creation with his ruach, his spirit, hovering over the face of the waters. And so here in the story of Noah, we see God's spirit breath stirs the waters again, stills the waves, separates the waters once again. And that phrase should perk our ears and make us think perhaps a new creation is about to begin. It looks forward to the Exodus as well, for at the Red Sea it is the Ruach, the spirit breath of God that blows on the sea, separating the waters so that the children of Israel may plant foot on dry ground. Now, now we see the God who undid his creation in the flood beginning to set his work right again, right? We're told the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, which means Waters below and waters above are put back where they belong. We're told the waters receded from the earth continually, which means land and sea are separate and distinct once again. 8 verse 3, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Again, the exodus is foreshadowed, right? After God brought his people safely through the waters of the Red Sea, where did he take them to? To a mountain, to Mount Sinai, where he made covenant with them. And so here, as the waters begin to recede, Noah begins to watch and wait, and he sends forth a raven, which is an unclean bird, a scavenger. And it wanders to and fro over the face of the earth, and it, it never returns. Like the unclean generation, it disappears in the decreated world. Noah then sends forth a dove, a clean bird. And at first, she finds no place to set her foot, so she returns to the ark. Like blameless Noah, the clean dove knows the only refuge now is in God's presence. So Noah waits another seven days. Notice his patience here. And he sends the dove out again. And this time, she returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf, evidence the waters have subsided. So Noah waits another seven days of consecration. And he sends her out again. And this time, she does not return. She has found the home which God has prepared for her. 8.14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, we see God putting his original creation back in order, filling the forms that he has established as he did on creation days four through six. And this is exactly what he said to the animals on days five and six. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As he says to them here, what we have in 
Genesis 8 is a new creation. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease shall not cease, as they had during the decreation of the flood. Now even day and night are put back in their place. Creation day one is restored, and God has set the world right once again. And so here on the mountain of new creation, we clearly see Noah acting as a priest, don't we? He brings an offering. He's taking the gifts of God and returning them to God in thanksgiving, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Good thing we brought seven of those animals, right? And notice that it's this act of worship that inspires the Lord's covenantal action. It is this act of worship that inspires God's promise to save because then God blesses Noah using the same words he spoke over the newly created Adam. Chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Noah is the new Adam, an even more glorious Adam. Adam was given the plants. Noah is given everything. Noah is the new Adam in a new creation with greater glory. The original dominion that was given in the garden and corrupted east of Eden is now restored. And it rests upon the shoulders of the righteous one who did all that the Lord commanded. Now we said that here on the mountaintop, God having brought his people safely through the waters, we should expect some kind of covenant ceremony, right? Like we have at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. And this is what we see. God says to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. I have set my bow in the cloud. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now we know that the rainbow is a natural phenomenon. It's light reflected through, or refracted through the mist. But Genesis tells us that God established this phenomenon as a sign of his covenant. And this is a really important point for understanding God's memorial signs throughout Scripture. Who is being reminded by this sign? Who is being reminded? God is. God says the sign is for him. That when he sees it, he will remember his promise. He will act. Right? Again, salvation is always and only by grace. God delivers his people. And the sight of his memorials, he says, is what inspires him to do this. Whether it's the rainbow in the clouds, or the lamb's blood on the doorpost, or the sacrifice on the altar, or the blood of Christ on your lips, God has established these memorials to remind him of his covenant. And because he is the faithful one, he always acts in accord with those promises. He fulfills his vows. Now, if you'll allow me a few puns, 
We've covered a lot of ground this morning. Maybe you feel inundated or overwhelmed or even flooded with information. So let me throw you a line. The Bible is the most gloriously repetitive book in the world. It keeps telling the same story over and over again, only with the names changed for the salvation of sinners. The story of Noah is one of the earliest examples of this story. So think about its basic plot, these, all these chapters that we've talked about. Distill it into one basic plot. You have this. You have one beloved son, the offspring of the woman. This son is blameless before God in the midst of a corrupt generation. He alone trusts in the Lord and does what the Lord commands. And still, he is rejected by his generation, rejected by his own brothers. And though he is righteous, he must pass through the time of testing and temptation. He must even come face to face with death itself. And the son is matured by his suffering, but he cannot save himself. And in the deepest darkness of his tribulation, God remembers his righteous one. So God saves him from death and sends his quickening spirit to enliven him. And having been revived and vindicated, God then exalts his chosen one and gives him dominion over the kingdom, a dominion which he then uses to deliver others. This is the story. This is the Bible story. The same story over and over again. It's the story of Noah. It's also the story of Abraham and the story of Jacob. And it's the story of Joseph and it's the story of Moses and it's the story of the Exodus and it's the story of David and it's the story of Job and it's the story of Daniel and on and on and on. And it is, of course, the story of Jesus. He is the truly blameless son, favored by God, rejected by a corrupt generation, matured through suffering. Unlike Noah, Jesus didn't get to ride safely above the waters of death because Jesus is not only the prophet, Jesus is also the ark. He is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. He is the new creation. So Jesus himself was plunged into the waters of judgment along with the wicked in order that all who enter into this ark might be spared eternal death, riding secure inside Christ Jesus. And in the darkness of his unmaking, God remembered Jesus. He raised him from the dead, restored his flesh in glory, set him on the throne of creation. God established a new covenant with him and gave him dominion over his new creation. And there, Jesus, the great high priest, intercedes for us. He is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, his body and blood the sign, the memorial of this new covenant. And when we, plunged and raised in the waters of his baptism and united with him by faith, when we partake of his memorial in faith, God sees it and he remembers his covenant with Jesus Christ. He sees that we have hidden ourselves in the true ark. He sees that the punishment we deserve has been paid. 
he sees that his beloved son has passed through the waters of death on our behalf. God remembered Noah. God remembers his righteous son, Jesus. And if you have taken your refuge in him, in the greater ark, in Jesus Christ, you too will be remembered. When you pass through the waters of death, Jesus will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. You will land safely in his new creation. You will join the joyous feast of worship, and you will reign with him forever. Let us pray.